Well, our sermon text this evening is a summary of God's Word, which we find in Lord's Day 11 from our Catechism. But first, I'd like to read with you Acts 10, starting in verse 34, going through verse 43. This is a section that describes the words of the Apostle Peter. We'll talk about the background to that in a few minutes, but Peter is preaching to a rather unlikely gathering of people. He's not preaching in the church He's not speaking in the temple courts as we see earlier in Acts, but he's in a thoroughly Roman city, in a thoroughly Roman household, which is something that had never before happened and not only would have been viewed, but eventually was viewed with some consternation by many of of the Jews, both believing Jews and unbelieving Jews. But listen... To the glorious message that Peter preached there. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Amen. Well, that gives us the background for understanding what we confess in Lord's Day 11. As we work our way through the Catechism's explanation of what we're really saying when we confess the Apostles' Creed, what is the significance of this confession we're making, the question is raised, why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? And the answer is because He saves us from our sins. Salvation cannot be found in anyone else. It is futile to look for salvation elsewhere. Well, do those who look for their salvation and security in saints, in themselves, or elsewhere, really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No. Although they boast of being His, by their deeds they deny the only Savior and Deliverer, Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior... Or, those who in true faith accept this Savior have in Him all that they need for their salvation. Amen. Beloved disciples, through our Lord Jesus Christ, there is a misconception in our culture that all religion is essentially equivalent. They all involve the worship of some deity. They all provide hope of life in the face of death. They all involve faith in something greater than me. And therefore, they are essentially equivalent, so the thinking goes. And of course, there are similarities between the various religions. However, there also are substantial differences 
that set them at odds. Each practice of religion rests on different and often contradictory truth claims. Each one is established on differing authority. Each one points to a radically different outcome. And only one of the religions among men can be true. But that's not a very popular sentiment in our society. Much more popular is the idea of religion as a a wagon wheel. I think I've mentioned this idea before. I've heard it so many different contexts where, you know, God is envisioned as the hub of the wheel. He's, he's the target. He's the one to which all are aiming. And men start out on that outer rim of the wheel, longing, seeking to get to the center. And the spokes, they're all different religions. They get there in different ways by different paths, but they're all getting to the same place, which is God, which is deity, which is the one uh, whom men inherently desire. That's a popular view of religion, and you can see why it's so popular. Because if it's true, then we don't need to be dogmatic about what we believe. It's okay for me to believe this and for you to believe that. It's okay if our views don't necessarily align because we're all going to end up in the same place and we'll work out the differences later on. We don't need to fight. We don't need to be at odds. We don't even need, really, to try to convince each other or convert one another. The only problem with that is A, it's a lie, and B, it is contradicted radically and frequently by the Bible. The Bible is stubbornly unique in its claims. It insists that God is precisely as He has described Himself in its pages. It claims that there is only one way for sinful men to be reconciled to the holy God and it denounces all other conceptions of God and all other, all, all other paths to God as being lies straight from the pit of hell. In truth, you cannot hold to some version of that wagon wheel view of religion and to the Bible. The two are utterly incompatible. And the very name of our Savior affirms that. We confess the second person of the Trinity as Jesus. And that name is not insignificant. It means Savior. And that is an exclusive claim. There is one Savior. He provides all that we need. In Him we find eternal comfort. And we find that nowhere else. And that is the truth that is so clearly and boldly affirmed for us in Lord's Day 11. Here we are reminded that Christians confess the comfort of Jesus, the perfect Savior. That's our theme. Christians confess the comfort of Jesus, our perfect Savior. And the first thing we see as we study that theme is that Jesus provides what no other offers. Lord's Day 11 emphasizes the significance of Jesus' name for a reason. His name was not at all random. God himself in Matthew 1 specified through the angel Gabriel that that's what he should be named. He spoke to Joseph. The angel spoke to Joseph, told him that his uh, betrothed bride was pregnant. That she would give birth to a son who would not be Joseph's son but would be God's son. And that he should give that child the name Jesus because he said... He will save his people from their sins. Now the thing is, Jesus 
doesn't actually, the, the Greek name, Jesus, doesn't actually have any significant meaning because it's not a Greek name. It's the transliteration of a Hebrew name, but the Hebrew name is tremendously significant. It's the name Yehoshua, which is a compound between Yahweh, a shortened version of Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God, and Yeshua, which means He saves. It was the name famously given by Moses to his assistant and successor, Joshua, who would lead the people into the promised land. But you might not remember that that wasn't Joshua's original name. His parents called him Hosea. But as his assistant and second in command, Moses gave him the name Yehoshua, thereby reminding the people that it is Yahweh, it is the Lord who saves them, it is the Lord who delivers them, it is the Lord who will provide for them and bring them into the place of promise. And that is why God gave His Son that very name. You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. He will fulfill for His people all of their promises. But what exactly does that mean? Well, a reading from Acts 10 gives us some insight. A bit of background to this passage. As I said, this speech took place in Caesarea, a Gentile city about 70 miles northwest of Jerusalem. That was not a place Peter came to randomly, nor did he intend to go there. Peter had been visiting in the city of Joppa and staying in the home of believing Jews, Jews who had turned to Christ. But meanwhile, in Caesarea, which was some miles distant, there was a centurion, sort of like a a low-level officer in the Roman army, a man who was in charge of a hundred soldiers. This centurion named Cornelius, having served in Palestine for quite some time, had learned about the religion of the Jews, had been exposed to the scriptures of the Old Testament, and had come to believe in God. He'd come to believe in the God of Israel as his own God had begun praying to him and worshiping him as well as he could. And so God sent to Cornelius a vision saying you need to send to Joppa to the house of Simon a tanner and you need to call from there Simon Peter and he will tell you what you need to do and what you need to know. And meanwhile Peter as he's staying by the house of Simon he's up on the roof waiting for lunch to be made and God sends him a vision. A sheet comes down from heaven and it's filled with all manner of unclean animals. Kids, there were certain animals that God told His people Israel that they weren't to eat. And this sheet was filled with unclean animals that Jews weren't supposed to eat. And God said, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And Peter said, never, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God said, do not call unclean that which God has called clean. And that same vision happened two more times. And then God told him, listen, there are some men coming to the door. You need to go with them. I sent them. It was good that he told him that because it turned out they were Gentiles at the door. Peter would not otherwise have gone with them. But remembering the vision, he saw that not only does he need to go with these people, but if God has called them clean, he can't call them unclean. 
And so he went with them to Caesarea, and that's how he finds himself in the unlikely position of standing in a Roman centurion's living room, speaking to a bunch of Gentiles about the God of Israel. It was absolutely unheard of, unprecedented. But processing the significance of that vision, Peter says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. He's not restricted his mercy only to the Jews, only to the offspring of Abraham, but people from every nation. And all of a sudden it starts clicking for Peter. Jesus said, make disciples not just of all the tribes. Make disciples of all the nations. Bring the blessing of Abraham to the people of all the world. Bring the blessing of the covenant to all the offspring of Adam. And so he proclaims the unique work of the Savior who was sent not just for the sons of Israel, but for the sons of Adam. Not just for the people of Israel, but for the people of all the world. And so he tells them how Jesus came with this unique ministry, this unique calling. He was the one uniquely prepared for this work. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And thus empowered, Jesus went about taking up a unique ministry. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. But having done that for some time, his ministry ended with him being crushed. They, where did it go? They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But, he says, it ended uniquely because God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. And Peter was a witness of all of it. He's, he's one of the ones who saw Jesus baptized beheld the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. He's the one who saw Jesus doing works that could only happen by the power of God, proclaiming truth that could only come by the authority of God, casting out demons in a way that demonstrated that he was no mere man. He saw how he had sinned not at all, not even once. He was absolutely righteous in doing everything God commanded and rejecting all that God forbade. And yet they killed him, hung him on a cross, made him one who was cursed by the Lord. And indeed, God himself turned out the lights for three hours, demonstrating that he had turned his back on Jesus. Peter witnessed it all. But Peter also witnessed him risen from the dead. Saw him eating boiled fish, which no ghost could do. Talked with him walked with him, ate with him on the seashore, stood on the mountain in Galilee and heard him proclaim that they, the church, they, the disciples, were to go out and make disciples of all the nations. Peter saw it all, and now he saw the significance. God sent Jesus because he would save his people from their sins, and not just the people of Israel, but the people of all the world, because the people of all the world have the very same problem. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 tells us that problem. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And that's a problem because we are all the unrighteous. We have all engaged in rebellion against the true God. We have all formed for ourselves in our hearts and minds false gods to replace the true God. We have all engaged both in our desires and in our deeds. Sins like sexual immorality and idolatry and adultery and homosexuality and thievery and greed and drunkenness and reviling and swindling. 
And he says, those who do that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But in truth, such were all of us. Because we all desired those things, even if we weren't brave enough to do them. But for those who trust in Jesus, the unique Savior who lived that unique life, died that unique death, rose with that unique power, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the only way we could be saved from all that rebellion. That's the only way we could enter into the kingdom of God. But if we trust in Jesus, then the cost of all that sin has been paid. The defilement of all that sin is washed away and we have been made holy in God's sight. No one else could accomplish that. The task was too big. The requirements for for fulfilling it were too small. The salvation that all men need demands a stunningly unique Savior. And Jesus is that unique Savior. As Paul said in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is only one who can bridge the gap between the perfectly holy and just God... And sinful men. And that's the one who is fully God and fully man. Absolutely perfect and absolutely selfless. That's Jesus. As Peter also said in Acts 4 verse 12, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Because He saves us from our sins. Jesus, who provides what no one else offers. Problem is, men like to take out insurance. They like to cover all their options. But that's offensive to Jesus because it indicates something less than true faith. And so the second point we need to see from this this text is that He is the Savior who requires what no one else deserves. When folks are not completely convinced that Jesus is enough, they they get that He did what we need, right? But they're not sure He did everything. They're not sure they want to put all their eggs in that basket. What they do is they embrace Jesus and. You, You get what I mean by that? They embrace Jesus to save them, and they also try to make sure they do enough good works to make them look pretty good in God's sight. They trust Jesus and they also pray to the saints and ask them to put in a good word for them. They trust Jesus and they make sure to make some extra donations to the church. They trust Jesus and, you know, they try to preserve a pretty stellar reputation for themselves. We see variations of Jesus and everywhere. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church invented it. It's built into their theology as it rose up throughout the Middle Ages. Salvation for them is through faith in Jesus and your church membership and your baptism and your penance and your personal suffering in the fiction that is purgatory. But they're not alone in that. The false religions like Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses, they demand that you trust in Jesus and and that you keep this specified list of do's and don'ts, this man-centered law, so that you show yourself worthy of Jesus. But we even find it in most common branches of American Christianity. To be sure, all of them 
externally, clearly affirm that salvation is only through Jesus. But if you ask the people in the pew why they're sure they're going to get into heaven, most of them, most of them will say, well, you know, I think I'm, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I think I've, I've managed to turn aside from most of my sins and, and I do a lot better than, you know, those guys. Jesus and. It's pervasive and it's an offensive lie. The Jesus and approach fits well with the wagon wheel approach to religion, but it is condemned by the infallible word of God. We just heard it, right? There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other that can do it, but by the name of Jesus we must be saved. And by Him alone. If Jesus is the perfect Savior, if He has done everything necessary, then to trust in anyone else alongside of Him is terribly offensive. Paul spoke about that to the Galatians. The Christians in Galatia, many of them were believing Jews. In other words, they had grown up as Jews and they had turned to Christ. But then they started having second thoughts. Spurred on from or by some Jews that were or Christians that were known as Judaizers, they started thinking, you know, it's okay that we're trusting in Jesus. It's good that we're trusting in Jesus, but we'd better keep the ceremonial law too. We'd better make sure that we and our sons are circumcised. We'd better make sure that we stay away from unclean foods. We'd better make sure that we keep the three major feasts each year and that we go to Jerusalem and that we do this and that we do that. And, that. and Paul says, no. He warned them in Galatians 5. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, and when he says that, he's referring to the whole ceremonial law. Circumcision was the entrance into the ceremonial law. And he says, I I tell you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ would be of no advantage because they're not fully trusting in Him. Instead of believing that Jesus accomplished everything necessary for their salvation... They're trusting in Jesus and their obedience. And so Paul says, listen, if you go back to the ceremonial law, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. They've fallen away because Jesus demands what no one else has a right to demand. He requires absolute, absolute trust. And he's worthy of it. As our catechism says, either Jesus is not a perfect Savior or those who, who in true faith accept this Savior have in Him everything necessary for their salvation. And He is the perfect Savior. As Peter told the house of Cornelius, to Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. And not just forgiveness of sins, all that goes with it. He forgives our sins and He makes us righteous in the sight of God by means of the righteousness that He accomplished. He removes our defilement and He renders us holy in the sight of God by His own holiness. He frees us from the penalty of death and He gives us eternal life that no one can snatch away. Everything we need, Jesus freely supplies. But we must trust Him alone. We must trust Him alone because no one else is worthy of our trust. If you trust in your own works, are you not implicitly saying that Jesus' works weren't enough? That when he said on the cross, it is finished, it really wasn't? He was mistaken? 
And if you trust in Jesus and the prayer of the saints, aren't you saying that, that their prayers are essentially equivalent to his prayers, that he's not really doing anything all that special, and that maybe he's not really asking for all that you need? How offensive is that? And if you're trusting in Jesus and the suffering that you do in that fiction known as purgatory, well, aren't you saying that Jesus' suffering didn't really cover all our sins? And that our suffering is essentially equivalent to his? How wicked that is. My friends, Jesus fulfilled absolutely every requirement for our salvation. He lived the perfect life, never sinning so that he could honestly be our substitute. He died as the perfect sacrifice, paying every bit of the penalty for our sin. He rose from the dead triumphant over sin, over Satan, over death, so that in him we could have victory over sin and death and Satan. There is nothing that we might need that He has not already provided. And more than that, He's continuing to provide by praying for us daily in heaven at the Father's right hand. If we do confess that He alone is our Savior, however, we receive a gift that no one else can give. If Jesus is the perfect Savior, says our catechism, those who in true faith accept this Savior have in Him all that they need for their salvation. And that's our last point here. Jesus is the Savior who comforts us as no one else can. A reading from Psalm 103 really celebrates that comfort of Christ. Right at the heart of this psalm, David proclaims the comforting nature of our God. The the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the nature of our God. His nature is not to crush and to destroy in judgment. His nature is not to eagerly celebrate the destruction of the wicked. His nature is mercy and grace. His nature is forgiveness and reconciliation. His nature is to comfort those who deserve wrath. And that's us. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. How pitiful we would be if He did. But instead He withholds His judgment in favor of grace. And that's a comfort that God can offer us only because Jesus took our judgment upon Himself. Because of what Jesus has done, verse 12 can tell us that our sins have been cast as far from God as the east is from the west. And verse 13 can tell us that God treats us with the compassion of a father looking upon His Son. But understand, apart from Jesus, that is impossible. Because then, for God to overlook our sin would be to deny His essentially just nature, and that God can't do without not being God. Yet because Jesus fulfilled His calling, we know our Father as the one who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Who else can do that? Who else can even begin? There is no saint whose prayers can perform it. There is no imam whose care is so perfect. There is no modern day prophet who is able to supply our needs. Nor can we comfort ourselves with that assurance. Jesus alone, for those who put faith in Him, is able. He is the one who meets our every need, who comforts our every hope, or our every hurt, 
who gives us hope in every circumstance. He's the only one. And therefore, we, my friends, must trust this perfect Savior and we must celebrate Him. Verse 17, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. Not on all of mankind exhaustively, not on all who join the church. His eternal and excellent and gracious love rests upon those eternally who fear Him, who trust Him, who look to Him alone for their help. So trust Him indeed daily, confessing that He is your Savior and your hope, constantly seeking His blessing in prayer, frequently telling others that He is the reason for the hope within you. And if you do confess the comfort of Jesus, the perfect Savior, worship Him. Worship Him. Speaking to himself, the psalmist calls out, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. That needs to be the song that we sing to ourselves every morning. That needs to be the refrain that we speak to our spouses every day. That needs to be the admonition we give to our children every evening around the dinner table. Boldly and gratefully. We need to recall the saving work of the Lord and reaffirm our trust in Him. And then we need to worship. We need to sing with David. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you are worthy of all our worship and all our praise because you sent your Son to do what no one else could do, to be our perfect Savior, taking upon himself all the penalty for all our sins, ensuring that by his work and by his work alone we could have eternal life and reconciliation with you and adoption as your children and blessing in every circumstance. Father, it overwhelms us to think of what you have done for us in Jesus. We pray that you would help us to reaffirm our trust in him every day, marveling in awe at what you have done through your son. And we pray, Father, that you would make us to be vessels for your glory, boldly and persistently proclaiming your praiseworthiness for all to hear, Worshipping you in our hearts and with our lips, with our minds and with our hands. So that there might be no doubt to those around us. That our hope, our comfort, our help is always and entirely and only in Christ. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, in response, let's stand and sing together. From number 410 in our Psalter hymnal, number 410, Come to the Savior Now. Mm. 